Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of EMIGCast. Once again, this is your host, Alex Kaminsky. But wait, two episodes in one month? That's right. Today marks the inaugural episode of WeMIGCast. WeMIGCasts are short 10 to 15 minute non-interview segments, which are dedicated towards bringing you more clinical content as promised. Little did you know that our EMIG episode earlier in the month was a taste of things to come, thanks to Nicholas Robbins. So a few quick nuts and bolts before we jump right into things. As stated, WeMIGCast will be a short secondary podcast every month in addition to our original format and content. These WeMIGs will be vignette-driven and appropriate to medical students at all levels. We'll be covering basic board-style questions for Step 1, Step 2, and often some advanced clinical pearls for the wards and beyond. The vignettes can be found on our website in addition to the clinical questions. And as always, please give us feedback and what you think about the new segment and how you would like to see it shaped in the future. All right, folks, without further ado, let's kick it off. The inaugural episode of WeMigCast. Vignette number one, the case of the unknown ingestion. Okay, cue the music. That theme. Sometimes I just can't help myself. Okay. A 32-year-old female is brought in by ambulance with altered mental status. She was reportedly depressed and making suicidal comments over the past 24 hours. Because of this, she was staying at her new boyfriend's apartment, who suffers from epilepsy and depression. Her boyfriend returned from the store to find her on the bathroom floor. On the scene, EMS reported multiple bottles next to her, including zipramine, fluoxetine, lorazepam, and aspirin. In the ED, her boyfriend endorses that she occasionally uses cocaine and oxycodone recreationally, but does not think that there was any in his apartment. Vital signs and physical exam on arrival. So her pulse is 135, her pressure was 70 over 42. Respirations are 8 per minute, and her pupils are dilated to 6 millimeters bilaterally. Her skin was noted to be warm and flushed and has a temperature of 38.2. She's drowsy and lethargic. In the emergency department, she's immediately given flumazenil, naloxone, and dextrose, and shortly after, seizes. Boy, lots to unpack here, as each one of these topics could probably be a ginormous segment in itself. But let's stick to a few basic questions. We'll start off with a step two question and integrate others as we follow. One, what is the most likely cause for this patient's seizure? Is it A, naloxone, or opiate reversal, B, cocaine intoxication, C, flumazenil or benzodiazepine reversal, D, SSRIs, E, tricyclic antidepressants, or F, aspirin. Go ahead and pause for a second if you need to reread the case or if you want to hum and haw over the answers. I'll give you a moment to pause. Okay, so what was the most likely cause of this patient's seizure? I'll give you a hint. Go check out episode seven of EMIGCast for a super detailed look uh, and workup for alter altered mental status with toxicologist Dr. Hendrickson. Okay, that wasn't so much of a hint as it was an advertisement, but in this question, I was hoping to rope a few of you into the answer C, which is incorrect. Giving flumazenil to a patient who takes chronic benzodiazepines is potentially a cause for seizures. However, this patient was staying at her new boyfriend's place who has epilepsy. Therefore, she's not a chronic benzo user, so this would be an appropriate population to use flumazenil in. The correct answer for this question is answer E, tricyclic antidepressants. TCAs are what caused her seizure. It was, in fact, the benzodiazepine that was protecting her from TCA-induced seizures. I'll attach some literature about TCA pathophysiology and, more specifically, the mechanism of actually how they cause seizures. 
So knowing that this was a TCA overdose, at least in part, we can identify some of the key features in the vignette that point us towards a tricyclic overdose. Some of which include the age-old anticholinergic toxidrome, which is both relevant for step one and step two. That's right, those things aren't going away. So let's say it all together, folks. <laughs> That's right, blind as a bat, mad as a hatter, hot as a hare, dry as a bone, and red as a beet. Blind as a bat, this refers to dilated pupils or medriasis, and in this case, our patient has six millimeter pupils. This is also seen in other toxidromes, such as sympathomimetic overdose. The medriasis in this case rules out opiate overdose, despite the fact that she does have respiratory depression. However, unique to this toxidrome, we find our red as a beet, our AKA flushed skin. Our mad as a hatter comes from the altered metal status or the confusion. You'll note that she's also hyperthermic in this vignette with a temperature of 38.2 Celsius. Now, note that I said hyperthermic and not febrile. That's something that'll get you points from the toxicologists when on the wards. Okay, for the sake of time, I'll be moving on. But as I mentioned before, I'll be attaching some literature that'll go much more into the specifics about TCA toxicity. And again, I'll put a plug in for uh, episode seven of EMAcast, which goes into this in much more detail as well. Moving on to our step one question. You immediately obtain an EKG on this patient. Of the choices in the previous question, you are most concerned with potential TCA-induced dysrhythmias. The mechanism of action for TCA dysrhythmia includes which of the following? A, calcium ion channel receptor agonism, B, sodium channel 1A agonism, C, sodium channel 1A antagonism, D, sodium potassium ATPase antagonism, or E, sodium calcium exchange antagonism. Okay, just another moment to pause. So the actual answer for this question is answer C, which is type 1 sodium channel antagonism aka quinidine-like type 1a antiarrhythmic effect, which basically screws up membrane stabilization. But try saying that three times fast. Quinidine-like type 1a antiarrhythmic effect. Ah, can't do it. Type 1a antiarrhythmic activity occurs due to membrane-stabilizing effect of blockade of inward and fast sodium channels, resulting in altered repolarization and conduction. This effect occurs distal to the AV node and produces a depression of the Hisperkinji system and a direct negative ionotrope effect. But in more understandable medical terms, the feared complication for type 1A blockade is the possible progression to torsade. Or should I say, torsade de poids. My apologies for abusing the French language. Now, most of you are familiar with torsade, so I won't go into too much detail. But essentially, what you see on an EKG is the gradual prolongation of the QRS complex, as well as the QTC interval which has the potential complication of leading to torsade. And of course, the reason why we worry about torsade is because it's a very unstable dysrhythmia, which can turn into VTAC or VFib, and are hemodynamically unstable rhythms that require immediate intervention. All right, folks, so that's it. Let us know what you thought. Did you like it better when we went through the answers immediately following the question? Or did you prefer Nicholas's route, where he addressed all the questions first and then went through the answers? Let us know in the comments section below or send us an email. And there it is, folks. That's it. That's a WeMig. Join us again next month for our usual content in addition to another WeMig. This has been your host, Alex Kaminsky, and it's been a pleasure and a privilege.